0: sa la verità ma oh, ma oh C'è chi riesce a sopportar ma oh ma oh. Sono tutti in guerra e non si sa Che cosa mai succederà ma oh.
1: Welcome to Two or Three Things I Know. Today we're talking about Norman Mailer.
0: And I I should probably begin by stating what, what drew me to this topic because I was the one who suggested this for reasons that are now somewhat eluding me. (laughs) But <laughs> a question should emerge for a lot of people, if you're ever at like a used bookstore, you just see like stacks and stacks of, of Norman Mailer novels. And the question I had is, okay, why does Norman Mailer have like no cultural footprint anymore? Like, you know, you go on Twitter, you see those really dumb posts that are like red flag books, you know?
1: Not a lot of people talking about Norman Mailer these
0: days. Not a lot of Norman Mailer, yeah, but people are still mad about, like, Jack Kerouac, or people like that, or, like, Charles Bukowski. The canon of kind of toxic male, for lack of a better term, literature still very much exists, but it seems to exist without Norman Mailer. I don't think there's a single, like, millennial or younger who, like, gives a shit about Norman Mailer, as, like...
1: Yeah, you don't see people on TikTok who are, like, if he's got the Executioner's song on his shelf, run! Like, no one says that when they'll say that about Kerouac or whatever.
0: And why is that? Why has Norman Mailer just totally faded from the public consciousness? Why is this, at one point, iconic author of a particular generation of, of American men, especially? Iconic author
1: and wife-stabber Norman Mailer?
0: This guy who was at one point at least probably one of the most famous writers of his generation was broadly acclaimed. You don't hear a lot of people talking about him anymore. And we thought, uh, who's better to figure this out than two Zoomers?
1: Who's better to figure out a question about the literary canon than someone who basically reads like a book a year? <laughs> but
0: yeah, it's not just a question about the literary canon, because Norman Miller has you should made multiple films and they are truly baffling i have never seen anything quite like them i'm gonna be fully on and i don't like them very much but like they are such a unique vision of the world
1: criterion you probably know this criterion has this sub series i guess you could call it called eclipse where they'll do like dvd box sets of films that like aren't important enough to warrant being released on their own but as a collection they're worth looking at so like you've got post-war Kurosawa as a box set, you've got early Bergman as a box set, you've got early Fassbender as a box set, and one of the box sets they did is the films of Norman Mailer, which includes Wild 90, Beyond the Law, and Maidstone. It does not include what I think is his cinematic masterpiece tough guys don't dance but i feel like they're holding out on
0: there's there was like a vinegar syndrome like blu-ray of tough guys don't dance that came out like i think last year
1: oh thank god
0: it is like available if people want to watch it it is like an iconic film to a particular so bad it's good audience like everyone who's listening to this has probably seen that clip oh god oh man oh god oh man if nothing else, because I just constantly repost that clip, like, as, like, a reaction meme, basically.
1: Ryan O'Neill, like, could have been huge. He was in a
0: Kubrick. Yeah, he was not Barry Lyndon. He's very good in Barry Lyndon. But we should probably, for the sake of our listeners who don't know anything about Norman Mailer, beyond know, what we've said so far, Norman Mailer was an American novelist, primarily, um, who... Uh, was most famous for writing a book called The Naked and the Dead.
1: Which was adapted into a film by Raoul Walsh which said film appears on Fossbinder's list of the greatest films at number two. There is one film that Fossbinder thinks is better than The Naked and the Dead and that is The Damned by Visconti.
0: And yeah, so Norman Mailer goes out in World War II, writes about the experience in The Naked and the Dead. It becomes a real literary sensation in the United States as he becomes hailed as like a voice of his generation type figure kind of continues to write these novels that deal with sort of masculine very very masculine themes sometimes very and very political themes he, he also writes a lot of journalism about boxing which is a reoccurring obsession of his which does also reoccur in the films we watched <laughs> for sure but at some point for whatever reason uh in 1968 uh norman mailer decides to pick up a camera and, and make a film for reasons that are are baffling to me. And that film, of course, is Wild 90.
1: This is just because I've got Fassbender on the mind, like, 24 hours, 7 days a week. But Wild 90 feels almost like Norman Mailer's Love is Colder Than Death.
0: I'm... Curious, like, what specific reference points Norman Mailer had when he was making this film. That is, like, an obvious point of comparison. You also get a lot of Godard almost in it. Like, this very kind of pastiche of kind of American gangster tropes and these very, like, alienating filmmaking decisions, these very gritty handheld photography done by, I might add, D.A. Pennebaker, the acclaimed American documentary filmmaker.
1: Who was also the director or maybe co-director of town bloody hall
0: which we also watch which we'll talk about
1: which is probably the funniest comedy of the 70s yeah
0: it's it's great so wild 90 is basically unwatchable i i will
1: it's the most watchable of those three movies if only because it is the only one that the Criterion channel has subtitles for.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's that great thing when you like English language movies that you need subtitles um, to understand in English. Like, that's that's always a good sign because nobody on set knew what they were doing when they made this movie. So, like, there is, the audio is like 25% just noise.
1: You really feel like you're in the room drinking heavily with Norman Mailer. art. Which all three of his early movies give that impression. Maybe Maidstone is a bit more grandiose. I think Beyond the Law might be the least watchable movie ever made. That's not even that... They're, like, like when you look at some movies that are, quote, bad, you know, you're like, this is not very good, but you're also not, like... I physically am incapable of watching this.
0: Yeah, like, you know, like, Mac and Me or something like that, or even, like, The Room. It's, like, stuff like that where it's, like, it's clearly incompetent, but it's not, like, your brain isn't hurting watching them.
1: Walking is not always fun, but it is something you're physically capable of doing, While walking with your hands is not something you're physically capable of doing, watching Beyond the Law is like trying to walk a mile on your hands.
0: There's a review by Andrew Saris of Beyond the Law where he kind of talks a little bit about Norman Mailer and one thing that he mentions in it is that Norman Mailer was kind of miffed by the reception of Wild 90 because he thought it should have been judged differently because it was his first movie.
1: Goddard made Breathless as his first movie and people fucking loved Breathless so it's not like they're harsh on debuts. Maybe it's just a bad fucking movie, Norman.
0: We should probably, like, try to explain the plot of this movie, which is just, like, Norman Mailer, whose character in the film is called The Prince, and his friends, uh, 20 Years and Buzz, they're in an apartment together, held up for, like, some non-specific crime that we're not really sure about, and they just kind of dick around and talk about their, their lives.
1: The Norman Mailer's first two movies are basically that Beyond the Law has some sort of a thesis, but... It has a thesis in the same way that like someone's typed out essay that has been dropped in the rain and like the ink is all blurry, there's a thesis there! You can't fucking see it, but I'm sure it's there.
0: We should say about Wild 90 also, all of of these early films, is that they were products of improvisation almost entirely. Like...
1: No, it's not like Norman Mailer sat down and wrote the script, because why would someone who writes books... able to sit down and write something
0: instead you are greeted with some of the most just baffling acting probably in like a film i have ever seen you get norman mailer just boxing a chair
1: the word cunt is used a lot
0: yeah and you get a very great scene where characters talk about eating pussy and the 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 demasculizing effects of pussy eating on a person
1: all like four of these norman mailer directed films and even town bloody hall convey very like fascinating attitudes about sexuality and like not just hetero versus homo just like the acts of sex norman mailer has fascinating ideas about
0: yeah
1: which i feel like is probably not a very new or interesting observation but like even as someone who hasn't Read anything by him, you do get the sense that, like, there's something going on in his head with regards to sexuality.
0: He has very kind of extreme concerns about being, like, demasculinized.
1: Yeah, that's he's I don't even want to say internalized homophobia because he's very clearly not gay. As (laughs) if there's one thing Norman Mailer does not want you to think about him, it's that he's gay.
0: Yeah, and there's even like a joke about that in Midstone, where when they're talking about Norman Kingsley, the character that Norman Mailer plays in that film, they say, "Oh, he might be gay," <laughs> or I forget they say he, he practices Greek love, I believe is the is is the the, the term of choice. <laughs> but yeah, especially in like Wild ninety, you get a sense that Norman Mailer and like his friends are just wildly overcompensating, like they're just fucking carrying guns throughout the entire movie
1: yeah and it's like nobody would think norman Mailer is gay because like he doesn't dress well or anything like he doesn't deserve to get mistaken for a homosexual but like (laughs) the amount of fucking posturing he does is fascinating it's i have no clue What
0: is the voice he's trying to do in Wild 90? I've read other people speculate that he's trying to do, like, a black voice, but it doesn't even sound like that. Like, I have honestly no idea what he was thinking with, like...
1: There's some, like, racial stuff in Norman Mailer's head as well, but, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly. I mean, he wrote that essay, The White Negro, which even just the name of that is, like, Okay, Norman.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he has some very, like, and as you'll see in all these films, he has, like, very unambiguously kind of racist believes
1: you can almost like see him trying to work through them in real time
0: yeah he has a kind of if i I can draw a distinction between his like misogyny and his racism the way norman mailer is a misogynist is like kind of with contempt where he has a kind of like fetishistic affection for black people in his films and writing yeah
1: there's almost a sort of like white guilt that he's got yeah yeah but it's also like i don't even know how to describe it it's it's just very strange his attitudes about everything basically
0: and a lot of it is just like an anxiety about um
1: his place in the world as a white man i feel he was the original incel <laughs> like, I mean,
0: kind of yeah that's like once we get to um, Town Bloody Hall, that'll become a lot more clear, the just bizarre sexual politics of Norman Miller, but, like, I think, like, if there's a defense to be made of Wild 90, it's that there is no movie, or any of the early two Norman Miller movies, is that there really isn't anything like them, um, at all. Like, there are things that are sort of close. I don't really enjoy them, to be fully honest, but, like, I will say, if you're someone who, like, enjoys kind of, like, eccentric cinema, you should check them out. Like, I think...
1: I mean, I don't think Wild 90 is the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, people are very harsh on it. They're like, this is the worst movie ever made. And it's like, it's really not. It's kind of...
0: I've seen Maidstone, and that's considerably worse. (laughs) To bring it
1: back to Fassbender, because I'm incapable of not doing that, if Wild 90 is his love is colder than death, Maidstone is his beware of a holy whore but like sapped dry of wit and charm and self-awareness and Leonard Cohen songs. So it's basically like just nothing.
0: It's nothing for probably the first seventy minutes. I'd say, like, basically nothing happens of note. We should we should actually say, like, the plot of the film. It's about Norman Mailer plays a an, an American director who is this supposedly like genius artiste.
1: Within the first five minutes of the film, he's his self insert is compared to Fellini and Benoit.
0: Yeah, he's the American Bidwell, but he's also extremely popular. That's the other thing you need to know. Like, everyone loves Norman T. Kingsley to the point where Norman T. Kingsley has decided he is going to run for president. He's also kind of doing, like, a southern accent almost in the film, which is kind of bizarre.
1: One cool thing about Tough Guys Don't Dance is that Norman Mailer isn't trying to act. He's leaving it to the masters, like Ryan O'Neill and Isabella Rossellini.
0: So Maidstone is divided into, like, 12 chapters which each have these very, like, aggressively in-your-face title cards, basically. Going through the life of Norman Mailer, a self-insert character, who is this supposed genius filmmaker. We don't really see any of his, like, genius films at all in the film.
1: No, we just kind of see him directing, and even that's just kind of doing nothing, which is kind of where the Beware of a Holy Whore comparison comes out. But, like, Beware of a Holy Whore is, like, genuinely autobiographical and self-reflective because, like, it is about an actual movie that Fassbender... The experience of an actual movie that Fassbender did direct. Well, you don't get that sense with Maidstone that it's, like, coming from any sort of place. It's just Norman Mailer, kind of... Norman Mailer, kind of... He's playing himself as a writer if he were a director. And, like, those are two very different skill sets. So it doesn't really work nearly as well. And also Norman Mailer can't act, like...
0: Yeah, he's a very bad actor.
1: He would be great on Saturday Night Live because his entire acting skills are trying and failing various accents.
0: He's an extremely, like, one-note performer. He loves to scream, that's another thing that, like, reoccurs in these films. It's just these, like, ear-piercing, like, shouts that he'll just do. I don't know why most of the time.
1: He's a big, angry boy.
0: Yeah, in, in Maidstone, it's about kind of this. The plot is really stupid, but, like, we're going to have to talk about it. There's a, a secret kind of, like, CIA-ish organization called the Prevention of Assassination Experiments, Comma Control. And the film is kind of framed around these people talking about how they need to kill Norman T. Kingsley because he's too dangerous. The joke, of course, is that the PAX, comma C actually incites assassinations. It doesn't prevent them. It, it causes them. It's supposed to be really funny, but it just isn't. And then there's also kind of um, Norman T. Kingsley's inner group that's referred to as the Cash Box, which is just all his, like, male friends.
1: This is me totally forgetting the plot of, like, all three of these early Norman Mailer movies because they're all just so nothing. It's like, oh, yeah, the Paxi. Oh, yeah, the the ending where it's, like, the last five minutes of Maidstone are, like, him talking about the movie, trying and failing... ...to do a distancing
0: technique. It doesn't work, though. It's way too self-aggrandizing. Like, he does the speech where he's like, we're making a new kind of movie, and it's so, like, it feels like kind of carnival barkery, if that makes any sense. He's trying to convince you that this turd he's made is, like, actually this, like, Brechtian masterpiece, but it really isn't. Um, and then the movie kind of, like, slowly goes off the rails, and it becomes very, like, surreal, where there's, like, a big dance party where, like, Norman Mailer is dressed like the Riddler for some reason. After his supposed in-character assassination is Norman Kingsley, he's just running around dicking about dressed like, dressed like he's from, like, the 19th century, looking just bizarre.
1: I have no idea why Criterion put these out. I'm
0: glad they did. I'm glad they did. I should say they're bad movies, but I'm glad that, like...
1: Sometimes a young author needs a sign, maybe you should stick to books.
0: I mean, he wasn't even young when he made this. He was, like,
1: Norman Mailer feels like he's just perpetually 50 years old.
0: He was, like, 37 when he made... Am I doing the math right? Oh, wait, no, he was 47.
1: Yeah, well, that's not... Like, he feels like he's been 50 his entire life
0: you get all the scenes in the film where he's like finding his actors and where it's, it's all in some house somewhere and he has all these women come up to him who clearly where it's like oh he's so charming and he, he's just like a dick the whole entire time and the other anxiety that i see kind of reflected in the movie is this very like palpable fear and kind of post-sexual revolution kind of american culture this idea that like hollywood and porn are gonna kind of merge almost and that's something that you kind of get in the film he's making it's there's this sort of overlap between the fear in some people that like, Hollywood is going to just literally start making porn, and just like, high big budget, which...
1: This is the future liberal wants.
0: It's it's stupid now, obviously, because like, it obviously didn't happen. There was certainly an era, especially in the years following Maidstone, where there was like, an increasing amount of kind of like, mainstream awareness of kind of pornographic filmmaking, stuff like Deep Throat and Beyond the Green Door being box office hits that you can see in, like, the top 10s for the years they came out. Yeah,
1: or, like, the whole Emmanuel.
0: Yeah! Well, they were wrong. You can definitely understand why in, like, 1970, 1975, and around that era, people...
1: Someone would think that...
0: Like, there's a Terry Southern novel. Terry Southern, the guy who wrote Dr. Strangelove, wrote a novel called Blue Movie that Stanley Kubrick famously wanted to adapt and never did about the making of the first Hollywood porn film as, like, a kind of dystopia, almost. But Maidstone is a movie that feels like it's trying to be about kind of like 60s hippie America. And it's almost comparable to, like, Weekend. The clear difference is, like, Weekend has, like, a point of view.
1: Weekend is by a person who knows how to make a movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maidstone is all shot like a home video.
1: There was a cinematographer on Weekend.
0: There is a cinematographer. It's D.A. Pennebaker again. though. (laughs) Like, really? Yeah, Dia Pennebaker was, like, one of the credited cinematographers. There's, like, six of them credited, so. It's six
1: of them and that's what they did?
0: But yeah, so you get, like, Norman Mailer dicking around, directing people for a while. You get the, kind of, assassination intrigue stuff. You get the framing device of... Uh, the newscaster uh, Jean Cardigan. I think that's supposed to be funny that her name is Jean Cardigan, but it just isn't. That's an Ace Attorney character name. I think the issue with this movie is just that for a movie about a self-insert character, there is like no like self-criticism in the movie.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting that like there's the Fellini name drop because when you look at something like Eight and a Half, it's self-indulgent but also to an extent self-critical. This is not self-critical it's just self this
0: is just fan fiction
1: this is just hi i'm norman Mailer. i have weird feelings about women
0: yeah That he's trying to kind of get out
1: i'm gonna get into a fight with rip torn uh...
0: yeah the issue with the film basically is there is no like jab really at like 60s counterculture in the entire film
1: yeah it's just presenting it as like this is what happened it's like okay what's the point
0: Yeah, there's no, like, comparatively, like, Weekend is, like, an assault on kind of bourgeois sensibilities.
1: Yeah, Weekend has got stuff going on. I said in the Godard episode that, like, I understand not liking Weekend. I do not understand finding it boring. I understand finding this boring.
0: Yeah, Maidstone, there's just, like, lots of just dead air in the film.
1: I understand finding all three of these first Norman Mailer films boring. I'm struggling to recount stuff from any of them. Like, they're such nothing presences in my head. Well, Town Bloody Hall and Tough Guys Don't Dance those are films that like stick in my memory
0: yeah i think because maidstone is such a fever dream like people joke about like tough guys don't dance being like a movie that was made on cocaine this feels like a movie that was actually like made on drugs and it's not a compliment i should say it feels like uh, supposedly they shot like 50 hours of footage over the course of like five days
1: it feels like a movie made on like anesthesia
0: (laughs) it was shot over the course of like five days they just rented a bunch of places in the Hamptons to do it. So they just like rented mansions for this movie. Also, supposedly it bankrupted. It did bankrupt Norman Mailer, the production of this movie. He had to sell part of his ownership of the village voice. Not all of it, but he was like a major shareholder in the village voice and he had to sell some of it so he could make Maidstone, which does make it funnier, honestly, that like this guy risks and caused his own bankruptcy to make this movie and it's just one of the worst things. You get the assassination ball bit, which I honestly like, is closer to the movie being good, almost, in a way that feels kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Head, the monkeys movie?
1: I have not seen the movie Head, the monkeys movie.
0: It's really good. It almost feels like the assassination bit is kind of channeling that, where you have this extremely loud blues song playing over all these fast cuts, and that feels like something I should like, right? This feels like almost in the wheelhouse is something I would like in that bit, but It just doesn't come together. There is no, like, through line for the movie. There's no, like, emotional or political or social or just narrative or aesthetic means of appreciating it, you know?
1: Yeah, you can't even like it ironically.
0: Like, oh, it's about this director who's, like, so scary that they need to make sure he doesn't become president of the United States. So they have to kill him. And then the entire fucking bit in the end where he, like, takes the entire crew onto the island where he's just telling them, like, what the movie is about It's just really bad. And the other thing from the Wikipedia page is it took them six months to edit the movie. And there's a... they a work print version of it that was like three hours and apparently norman mailer said it was too slow and i mean norman hashtag release the mailer cut release the three hour cut of maidstone but like norman we know the movie is slow we saw the 110 minute version and it's already like basically unwatchable
1: release all 45 hours of maidstone
0: yeah release every single drop of it and in this movie you do get him kind of ineptly attempting to talk about like sexuality where you both. Both yeah, get like the weird gay stuff. The conversations he has with the female characters in the film are all like about how cool, but like there's nothing there though. Even compared to his actual writing, a lot of which I wrote is just basically misogynistic. With this, it is like misogynistic, but it's not like misogynistic in a way that is like possibly interesting. The sh- It's not like Tough Guys Don't Dance, which we'll get into later, where that's like a fever dream of a man working through his feelings about gender, and that's why I think that movie is better than this. Because this is just self-insert. Tough Guys Don't Dance is-
1: This is basically just a pretense for us to talk about Tough Guys Don't Dance.
0: Yeah, Tough Guys Don't Dance is, like, pathetic. Um, and that's the difference.
1: It's fascinating. This is not fascinating. This is just, like, what the fuck? But, like, Tough Guys Don't Dance. You watch it and, like, there's almost sort of... This is, I think, where you get the best sense of, like, Norman Mailer's anxieties about masculinity and about sexuality. Like, you actually do get a real sense. And it's presented, like, in a way... That's obviously not self-aware and thus not really making a commentary on it, but it's so ridiculously, like, the way it's just played out in the film that it kind of could be interpreted as being self-aware and a commentary on it. If that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, like, I think the issue with Maidstone is that it's way too trying to be cool. And in trying to be cool, it just dates itself so much more than Tough Guys Don't so Dance. Like, Tough Guys Don't Dance is a movie that, like, makes no no sense in the context of, like, the 1980s.
1: Yeah, no, but it doesn't really, Tough Guys Don't Dance doesn't feel dated. It kind of feels timeless, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Whereas Maidstone is trying to kind of ride away. Almost
1: tough guys don't dance. Like it almost could have come out at basically any time while his 60s, 70s stuff do feel like very much they they kind of require sort of an understanding of Norman Mailer as this late sixties, early seventies countercultural icon, while Tough Guys Don't Dance just kind of
0: is. Yeah, Tough Guys Don't Dance is one of those like archetypal narratives. Like if you look at like cave paintings, you'll see people screaming, Oh god, oh man. <laughs>
1: If you look at cave paintings, you'll see just
0: people snorting coke at parties.
1: I'm feeling demented tonight.
0: There's so many just great lines in Tough Guys to There are great lines in his other movies too. Some of the stuff that they say in Wild 90 is like genuinely funny but it's impossible to
1: yeah wild 90 is the most watchable of those three
0: wild 90 only becomes watchable when you put on the subtitles obviously which I only did at like the halfway point
1: (laughs) you were like oh you're supposed to understand
0: what they're saying I think my favorite quote from wild 90 is your shit stunk you were a weak infant stuff like that where it's like it's failed macho posturing. it's not even like correct it's like it's not even like actually masculine in like any kind of conventional sense. It's just, like, weird and pathetic.
1: Yeah, no, and that kind of speaks a lot to Mailer's character.
0: Or the other great quote, you want pussy, clean this joint. Ha, Or, don't talk so much about cock sucking, and then you hear, shut up! Shut up! Shut up! And it's like, that's so good. If I could actually hear it without needing the subtitles, I think that would, if that was in, like, a better movie, Wild Mindy could be, like, a camp classic.
1: Yeah, well, Tough Guys Don't Dance is undeniably a camp classic, and it's interesting that like these three films are all improvised while tough guys don't dance is obviously not improvised you can tell because there's actual real cinematography in the film like it looks very pretty i should say
0: yeah tough guys don't dance also had rewrites done by robert town the guy who wrote chinatown forget it jake forget it It's it's fake cocaine deal town i haven't actually watched chinatown it's pretty good. Robert Town also directed Personal Best, which is that, like, lesbian sports movie. Or I should say bisexuality-themed sports movie. Oh. I actually have never seen it. It seems interesting. Pauline Kael wrote a very positive review about it that I remember reading a while well that now i gotta see it yeah that could be like one of our like pride watches it should be <laughs> this extremely horny robert town uh lesbian sports drama
1: i'm always down for a movie about lesbians directed by a straight man <laughs>
0: yeah i've been for a movie about lesbians that Polly kale said was good uh, that's what i'm curious about um
1: yeah because she would know
0: would she She would do gay men, I think.
1: I feel like Pauline Kale is, like, a cautionary tale of, like, what happens to a woman who, like, should be an extraordinary fag hag but has no gay friends.
0: Did she have gay friends? I feel like she
1: did. I mean, I feel like she could have, but, like, she didn't really have, like... Like, there's no gay men she's infamously associated with. I'm sure, like, there were, like, gay guys who were like, oh, yeah, I know Pauline Kale. But, like, she she wasn't, she could have been, like, such a gay icon.
0: Yeah, if she wanted to, and she did. But, like, I think we're, with Maidstone, we should probably talk about the ending, because it's the only thing anyone knows from this movie.
1: Oh, yeah, it, Norman Mailer has an improvised fight with Riptorn, where
0: Riptorn tries to kill him in front of Norman Mailer's kids, we should add. <laughs> I actually don't think the actual, like, hammer thing is particularly good, but the bit after where, like, Rip Torn is just talking about it is honestly, like, fucking terrifying. Where you have Rip Torn with just, like, the, like, nuttiest eyes you've ever seen, um, you see just, like, the blood dripping down him as he's, like, talking about how the movie needs to be real and how he gave Norman Mailer a gift by trying to kill him, and it's not good, but, like, I feel like in scenes like that where, like, they're debating, like, what is reality could have made, that's the scene that, like, threatened to be in a better movie, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's something where, like, in a smarter movie that would be, like, the, like, centerpiece theme of the film would be like, okay, we do all this stuff but then none of it feels real and then reality kind of bursts into it. The hammer thing is much closer to, like, an actual, like, Brechtian alienation on screen because it's so, like, raw and sudden in a movie that is just really, like, farcical. Rip Torn is just bizarre in the movie. He doesn't really get a lot to do in it but when he is in it he's very like scenery chewing you can tell he's a real actor
1: he's a real actor Well, nobody else really is tough guys don't dance is what happens when you have like real actors
0: reading urban mailers right
1: being directed by someone who is not a real director so you have these utterly fascinating performances by these great actors i would like go As far as to call, like, people call stuff Lynchian a lot, but I genuinely would call tough guys don't dance Lynchian.
0: Yeah, that seems like a reference point for the film. It's funny that it feels like it almost, like, it's clearly kind of ripping off Blue Velvet to a certain extent, maybe. Like, it came out a year after Blue Velvet.
1: It's got Badamante doing the score, it's got an idyllic small town setting, it's
0: got... But, like, it feels like it anticipates ideas in Twin Peaks, if that makes sense. The bits with, like, the cabin and the kind of, like, low-class villains.
1: Yeah. Or even just, like, this mysterious murder that no one really knows who did, and, like, just the sort of unreality that Tim Madden is constantly experiencing. And I do think that the film's like bananas structure serves
0: there's flashbacks in flashbacks in the movie it's great
1: and like there's no indication whatsoever of what is a flashback and what is present there's no difference in costume or anything to indicate every scene kind of exists in its own reality
0: yeah, it's almost like a sketch movie in that we should probably talk a little bit about Town Bloody Hall before we go straight to guys. Don't Try
1: Town Bloody Hall is basically the best comedy of the 70s.
0: I think Town Bloody Hall is a fascinating piece of intellectual history.
1: There's some, like, parts of the discourse that you still kind of see around, and there's other parts that you just do not.
0: You get a lot of stuff, ironically... Uh, in the film where people are cajoling, uh, Jermaine Greer and uh, well, really all the nailers cajoling uh, repeated invocations of sort of biological reality in the film, and that feels pressing. And please don't look up what Jermaine Greer thinks about biological reality. <laughs> But I think the film is interesting because um, it would be wrong to think of it, Norman Mailer makes this comment in the film, that it would be wrong to think of it as, like, Norman Mailer debating these four feminist writers of various types. He's
1: not really debating them. He's just kind of saying stuff. Yeah, no, Norman Mailer's just kind of in this room.
0: He's just the ringleader, almost. I compared him to, like, a carnival barker earlier, but he is like a carnival barker here, where he's just kind of cajoling. But you got four, we should probably talk a little bit about the, for people who haven't seen the film which is probably most people
1: which is a shame because it's very very good if there's one film from this episode that is like genuinely good and like worth watching without even like a shred of irony or camp it is definitely town bloody hall although i will say norman Mailer himself is a very camp presence the part where he's like and i want to talk to you about lesbians god damn it
0: So, we should, like, for the structure of the film, it begins with each feminist speaker gets ten minutes to speak their mind, basically, about really whatever they want. It's very free-willing. So, first, you get... who who speaks first in it? Yeah, Jacqueline...
1: Jacqueline Cabalas.
0: Yeah, however you say that. So, her thing, she very much frames herself as like the moderate where she's talking about why feminists why she thinks they shouldn't care about the civil rights movement or the war and she's like we're just focusing on women. I booed when she said that. I was like no. Where she's trying to market it very explicitly to middle class men it seems like. Well and middle class women too where she's going okay we're not these crazy radicals who want to destroy the family or whatever.
1: We're not these crazy radicals. Anyway next up is is Germaine greer <laughs>
0: who i think like in spite of various comments that jermaine greer has made over the years i think she's probably the closest to being correct out of anyone who's speaking well in town bloody
1: hall that's not really
0: she makes some very good kind of jabs i think
1: there's i believe someone in the audience who says that norman mailer is afraid of lesbians because they're women he can't sleep with i think that whoever that person is that's the most correct person Person in town Bloody Hall.
0: Actually, uh, Jill Johnson is the most correct person in town Bloody
1: Hall. Oh, Jill Johnson is great in town Bloody Hall.
0: She rocks so much. She's speaking free associatively while on stage. It's great.
1: She's doing like this poetry almost, this prose poetry about like how women are lesbians and how all women are lesbians. And she's like combining words and it's just, it's great.
0: It's like good awesome mindset stuff is how i describe it it's just jill johnson just like doing word association games she's great i just want to say that like i haven't really read any of her stuff she might suck for all i know but like in this movie she is a charisma um she has all the charisma then after she goes like way over the speaking limit and there's a big debate over whether or not she should be allowed to continue speaking which takes up a little bit of the film and then after she's finally done she has two women come up on stage that they all start kissing which is very funny in the context of the film, and you just kind of see everyone else sort of reacting to this. But yeah, Jill Johnson doing some, like, grade-A trolling in the film is truly something. You also have Diana Trilling, who is famously wife of American literary critic Lionel Trilling who has probably, in terms of influence, eclipsed his wife. She is also probably, like, a more liberal in the film, you know?
1: I'm very vaguely familiar with who these people are. The only one I'm really familiar with is Germaine Greer, who, like, obviously is cancelled.
0: I should say, she looks, like, this is probably, she has, like, a really good vibe in the movie. I don't know how to phrase this in a way that isn't misogynistic, like, reducing women to their appearance, but I mean, Germaine Greer does that reduces both of us to our appearances, so maybe we're allowed. She is just, like, really kind of something in the film. So you have all of these, the main speakers, Norman Mailer, they all kind of talk. Norman Mailer asks them a fair bit of questions. They go back and forth. They never really talk about lesbians, which is kind of unfortunate. They talk a little bit about, about gay people, and that kind of gets out. Norman Mailer's like, homophobia, where he's like, the problem with lesbians is that gay men have gay sex to become women. Like, <laughs> Whereas men can do everything lesbians can, that's his. Which is like, I don't know if that's true. That doesn't seem true, Norman. The comment about gay men also is just really, I think that reveals a lot about Norman Mailer's sexual politics, is that he can't view someone having a dick in their butt or sucking a dick without it being this dehabilitating act of violence placed upon you. Does that make sense?
1: There's that guy, the blonde guy, I already forget his name, from Tough Guys Don't Dance, and there's the part where like he's basically Threatening to put his gun in Tim Madden's mouth, but it almost, the way they're talking about it. He's kind of
0: ambiguously queer in the (laughs)
1: film. There's almost an insinuation that this gun is a stand in for a phallus. It's like, do you want to put my pride and joy in your mouth? <laughs> That's,
0: uh, which character is that? That's Wardley Meeks the Third, which is a great name.
1: Wardley, yes. One of many bizarre performances in that film.
0: With Town Hall, you get these various kind of feminist literary figures sort of confronting Norman Miller for a piece he wrote in Harper's Magazine, thus referred to as The, the Prisoner of, of Sex, which is his kind of response to radical feminism, it's fair to say. Yeah I think the issue with the film Or not really an issue An issue with Norman Miller Is Norman Miller doesn't really seem to understand Like the grievances of radical feminism Well why Or any feminism really (laughs) Sorry you were were gonna say
1: I'm really not sure what I was going to say. I'm thinking about Tough Guys Don't Dance now.
0: Yeah, okay, we'll get to it. We gotta eat our vegetables first, then we can have the fun Tough Guys Don't Dance conversation. (laughs) I think with this film, it is like a very good time capsule of a kind of literary New York in the 1970s.
1: Oh, yeah. The intellectual sort of discourse that was going on at the time is captured really well in Town Bloody Hall.
0: If you are like me and you kind of know these people, you're reading some of them, like, like Sontag or like Cynthia Osnick or whoever else, you will probably get something out of the film. I got stuff out about that in the oh, they I know who this person is kind of way.
1: I know who Greer is, I know some of the others by name, I know who Mailer is. This is a better performance in Town Bloody Hall from Norman Mailer than his actual acting
0: roles. He is like a misogynist, but I'd be lying if he wasn't funny.
1: He's so fucking funny, he's riffing on a level that is freaking sublime. I love the part where he He's like you're just giving speeches to one of them. Like it's a debate. They're all just giving speeches.
0: He has a very natural charisma, which totally does not come across in his acting at all.
1: Well, no, because he's trying too hard. Here, he's just kind of being himself, and it works a lot better. Yeah, he's
0: kind of naturally funny, isn't it? and yeah, the prisoner of sex article that he wrote is like him trying to argue against like uh, any kind of feminism. But the issue, as Cynthia osnick points out, is he doesn't really seem to understand feminism, and as she. He refers to him as a priest, which I think is like one of the best owns in the entire movie. It's just her saying it's the same reason you wouldn't expect a priest to understand this stuff. Shots fired. She's brutal, and you get the Susan Sontag bit where she- Susan Sontag asks Norman, and by extension, all of the panelists, if they like being referred to as a lady by Norman Mailer, which Susan Sontag, I think, correctly understands as a kind of passive aggressive gesture or in a very like tokenizing gesture. And it's funny uh, that Norman Mailer just immediately caves on this and it's like, I will never say lady again, okay. He is, like, extremely unwilling. Like, he's extremely willing to just move on this, like, immediately the moment someone says anything, about it, which is pretty funny. It's a really interesting film. I would say it's one that definitely, if you care about, like, the history of 60s, 70s literary culture, especially in New York, should watch this movie. I don't know how well it would play if you didn't even know who Norman Mailer was. It would probably still be...
1: It's still funny to just watch this guy get owned.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. That is, like, the appeal of this.
1: Norman Mailer gets. That's epically owned by
0: feminists. I'm shocked that this isn't like a more popular movie.
1: Yeah, no, because people like Pennebaker.
0: People like debate shit also, which I don't really understand. People like the sort of YouTube debate spectacle. Stuff that I really don't grasp why people find appealing, but I found this appealing uh, because it was people I recognize and like cared about to a certain extent. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I I would watch the shit out of this on Twitch. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I don't
0: understand like Twitch debates.
1: I would be like pog champing. If
0: it was just mid 20th century literary, intellectuals i would watch that mid-20th century literary intellectuals being kind of bitchy and catty i would i would fucking kill for that that'd be my dream it's really funny when the other great thing is when i think it's greer who talks about norman Mailer's family and says like there's two daughters and three boys one of which being norman or something like that and then norman takes like serious offense to this that
1: was such a great own norman like spends like the next five minutes just being like why would you say that why would you come all the way from from australia just to say that to me why would you get all the way to new york you go through customs you pack your bags just to say that to me like he's
0: He's so taken (laughs) aback by it. It's so good. And
1: he's, like, picking apart. It's like, why couldn't you just said there were three boys and not specified? Why didn't you just do that, Jermaine? Like, he's so mad.
0: He's so mad. And he's trying to work through all these feelings he has about gender in public with all of these feminist literary intellectuals. And it's very strange.
1: Very worth a watch.
0: Very worth a watch. Very interesting. I would say, like, watch Town Bloody Hall and then watch Tough Guys No Dance.
1: Yeah, make a double feature out of it.
0: They form an interesting... Watch Maidstone if you're a masochist. Or just look up the last 10 minutes of Maidstone on YouTube. You don't really need to see anything else in it. And don't fucking watch Wild 9D. Unless you love subtitles in uh, English language films. But yeah, we're finally at, after all of the vegetables eating for the evening, we're finally at the fun part, which is...
1: After sleepwalking through an hour, I can finally talk about Tough Guys Don't Dance, which is, like I said, it's... An illusionary Lynchian nightmare about masculinity and internalized homophobia. It almost feels like a Douglas Sirk movie on whatever the fuck is going on in Norman Mailer's head.
0: I should say one thing that I like about the movie, beginning with probably something that's a bit more straightforward, is the cinematography of Provincetown looks very nice.
1: It's interesting because you have great actors. I mean, Ryan O'Neill, he'd been on a soap opera, he'd worked with Kubrick, you know, he had like a real career. Lawrence Tierney, Wings Hauser, Isabella Rossellini- Pendulette. Yeah. That's
0: kind of you have Pendulette. That's my favorite casting choice in the entire movie. Is that Pendulette pre-fame, I think. I don't know when like a pen and teller got particularly big.
1: As big a Stoop. All of these characters have incredible names.
0: They all have like these are all the names of people who could like own a chain of used car dealerships that would be like profiled in a like CNN. Um, here's what Trump voters are like. Names like Patty Lorraine Wardley Meeks III. These just extremely white names. Even just Lawrence Tierney, who's plays Tim Madden's dad in the film. Dougie with a Y. Yeah, Dougie with a Y, which is another Twin Peaks crossover. Holy shit. Yeah, so we should probably explain the plot of this movie, or at least try to.
1: Ryan O'Neill plays Tim Madden, who's allegedly an alcoholic, or at least is prone to blackouts, who basically is struggling to recount the last week, roughly, of his life and the murders that he may or may not have committed. And he's telling it to his dad, who's Lawrence Tierney, who's dying of cancer. And that's the frame story of the many flashbacks within flashbacks.
0: There's the bits where he's flashing back. It's so great. The moment I realized there was a flashback and a flashback, I was like, this is a great movie.
1: Um, <laughs> very Canterbury Tales, very Chaucer.
0: But unlike, unlike Chaucer, it's hard to follow. <laughs> like, you're just constantly like...
1: <laughs> Every scene kind of exists in and of itself. It's a
0: dream state in this entire movie.
1: It is genuinely harder to follow than Inland Empire because Inland Empire has has a very easy to follow thesis this has something I don't know what
0: this is like a kind of like 80s neo-noir is probably fair to say like it's clearly inspired by that kind of boom stuff like blue velvet and the other point of continuity it actually has with blue velvet is that blue velvet is also really funny but the difference is like Top guys don't dance is just baffling in a way that blue velvet isn't you just have all these scenes of the most bizarre acting choices with these Pretty good looking, like cinematography of Provincetown. It's a good advertisement to go to Provincetown, I should say. You
1: have Angelo Bidalamenti doing the score. You have pretty cinematography of like an idyllic American town. You've got this bizarre, stunted line delivery. You've got Isabella Rossellini. It's like impossible to not think of Lynch when watching this.
0: The other probably difference is this movie has much weirder feelings about women than. David Lynch does.
1: Well, this is like David Lynch for man.
0: (laughs) Yeah, basically.
1: I mean, David Lynch is David Lynch for man, but it's like David Lynch does seem to have some preoccupations about the trauma of being female if that makes sense yeah
0: that norman mailer does not
1: when you look at inland empire or fire walk with me or obviously mulholland drive these sort of like he's sort of in tune with what women can go through and like how traumatic just existing in the state of being a woman can be and norman mailer in tough guys don't dance is almost doing that same thing but for men
0: it's kind of like when he says in, like, Town Body Hall where he's talking about how, like, these feminists don't know how hard it is to be a man.
1: Yeah, it almost feels like that.
0: Yeah, it's like a whole film of the horror of being falsely accused.
1: Ryan O'Neill as Tim Madden, there's very clearly, like, within the first five or ten minutes of the film, he says to his dad, you always thought I'd turn out queer. That undercurrent runs through the whole film. They use the word faggot a lot in the film, which is, you know, A+.
0: Yeah, and... <laughs>
1: Happy Pride Month.
0: Yeah, I think like with the way the film, it's 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 not like any, I, I said this already, but it's, it's not like anything else. This movie.
1: Oh no, it is truly something that needs to be seen to be believed.
0: Everyone has seen the clip on YouTube of the Ogato oh oh man. The much neglected other bit is where the cop character Alvin, great cop name, has like the freakout after he finds out that Patty is dead. Where he like I don't even know what to explain what happens to him. He's just like in such a state. Of, it's like a heart attack almost. He's like in such a state of shock.
1: Can we please talk about never call an Italian small potatoes? Yes, yes,
0: yes. I don't understand that. What does that mean? <laughs> You're the
1: Italian. <laughs>
0: I don't, I, I like, it's something that, like, I don't, but yeah, don't call me small potatoes, I guess. Isabella Rossellini is really, really interesting in the film. I'm disappointed by how sidelined she is in the plot of it, if I'm gonna be honest. Like, I wish she was in the movie more.
1: Patty Lorraine is the main female presence in the film, even if the ending does have, it is kind of that same artificially happy Hollywood ending that Fassbinder describes in some interview or other. It's
0: terrifying, though. Just- Thing. You get the creepy music as Ryan O'Neill is tripping, basically.
1: Literally, what is and isn't real in the film is totally ambiguous.
0: The best scene in the movie is the ending, where they're unloading all the bodies into the water.
1: Though. Maybe cancer is the cure for schizophrenia. Maybe schizophrenia is the cure for cancer. I love the way that, like, Lawrence Tierney pronounces shit. It's so funny.
0: Lawrence Tierney is the perfect person to be in a Norman Miller movie.
1: Yeah, he he is
0: Lawrence Tierney is actually a tough masculine guy unlike Norman Miller.
1: Yeah, Norman Mailer, you get the feeling Norman Mailer is like the Lawrence Tierney character is the character he aspires to be this macho masculine figure who's suffering for no real reason and yet he toughs through it he's like fuck you you don't tell me what to do while the real life norman mailer is more like ryan o'neill this just pathetic sort of loser who's like constantly reassuring himself he's properly masculine
0: yeah i think that's why this movie is better than maidstone is in maidstone
1: there's a dichotomy
0: yeah in maidstone there is just this norman kingsley is like the greatest guy ever
1: he's like fellini he's like Benwell. he's like antonioni he's like kurosawa it's like no 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 and no
0: in tough guys don't dance the movie is just so pathetic that it's more endearing
1: ryan o'neill is one of the great pathetic guy performances of all time even if it is totally unintentional.
0: Yeah, there's so many just bits in the film where just like... I'm feeling demented tonight. Yeah, where he's just sitting there. My other... Just reading things I wrote down while watching it. I made X-rated films. xxx rated films. Now I'm in real estate in Santa Barbara. Fine homes. <laughs> some of the best writing
1: it's a fascinating film
0: There are the gay shit the other thing that comes up obviously is the i did three years in the slammer nobody made me a punk and then his dad just replies good for you
1: i didn't ask thanks son for telling me
0: this when he goes to his weed stash and he opens it and he just goes oh so he opens it and it's just like what is What is this fucking voice he's doing? Why is he reacting this way? It's so camp. I love it. It
1: is a very camp movie in the way that his other movies don't have the sort of...
0: This was made by the canon group. Because,
1: like, this is produced like a real movie. It had... It was distributed by a real group. It had, like, a budget of five to ten million. It had real actors. It had real cinematographer. It had a real script doctor. Like... This should have been a real movie and yet something about it just feels so utterly bizarre.
0: The Cannon Group, famous for being the group that distributed Death Wish 3 and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and also the Goddard-King Lear movie, I might add.
1: Oh yeah, another- Which is why
0: Norman Mailer, I think, is in the King Lear thing is because they're both hanging around in 1987 (laughs) with the Cannon Group.
1: Ah yes, Norman Mailer, friend of Goddard, King Lear, the movie with the first ever post-credits cameo.
0: It is funny that Norman Mailer is making a film for this. Not exactly exploitation. A company probably, to most people, kind of synonymous with trashy 80s movies.
1: I'm just going through some of their films. You've got titles, The Last American Virgin. Uh, you got Love Streams by John Cassavetes. Yeah,
0: you get the Death Wish sequels.
1: You've got like, some real movies thrown in there.
0: Yeah, you get like, real movies that, if you were alive in the 80s, would probably like, haunted video stores like the jaws of death I'm just reading through lists of films stuff like that where it's like
1: and then released four days apart by canon group king lear on september 15th of 1987 And on September 18th of the same year, you get Tough Guys Don't Dance.
0: What a great, if you saw both those back to back, that would be like a great...
1: That would be like an insane
0: week. That would be amazing. But yeah, I think Tough Guys Don't Dance. I don't know how much of it is intentional, and at some point I really don't care how intentional is? It's just funny in a way that most movies aren't. So like, as you get further in the plot, the Ryan O'Neill character gets implicated in the murder of these two people. And then he kind of slowly begins to unravel a conspiracy that he thinks is like a cocaine deal with his former classmate, played by John Bedford Lloyd, Wardley Meeks III.
1: Who is kind of implied to have some weird sexual, weird feelings. It's very interesting that this is what Norman Mailer thinks a gay man is like. You almost get the sense Norman Mailer is intentionally trying to code this guy as homosexual, and it comes across as like, you get it? But also, it's like, this is what you think a gay man is like, Mr.
0: Mailer? He's a southern gentleman.
1: You can tell Norman Mailer doesn't really have any gay
0: friends. One thing that you get, also, he meets Patty, we should say, through Screw Magazine, in in that one bit, where he answers a personal ad to Wife Swap, basically.
1: For a Christian couple.
0: One of my favorite things is when Isabel Rossellini says, he must have the biggest prick in all of Christendom.
1: (laughs) Imagine your parents are Ingrid Bergman and Roberto Rossellini and Norman Mailer is making you say shit like that.
0: The bit where they're all having sex is really funny. Where You have uh, Madeline and Big Stoop having this very like passionate sex that you hear very loudly. And then Tim just can't get it off. Then he eats her pussy, one could say.
1: There's a great exchange in one of the sex scenes where does this make you feel like a faggot? No, it makes me feel like a masochist. That is the exchange that lingers
0: in my head the most. Every scene in this movie is just like that. It's so weird. And then like as the conspiracy gets unraveled it's revealed that there really is no cocaine and that it was a setup to steal Wardley's money and then I'm trying to even remember what happens. I watched this last night.
1: I literally watched it this morning and the plot is I feel like it's one of those films that like you have to study for a whole semester before you can truly understand. I feel intellectually unprepared to talk about this movie more so than any of the fucking Godard movies
0: They uncover the plot. You have the cop character, played by Wingshauser, who is, like, a brilliant meathead in the movie, I should say. Where he's, like, an ex-Vietnam guy who still has his machete.
1: Is he the one who's like, I'm a good old-fashioned American, I like to kill fags?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: That's another great line. I feel like if you were to just look at the transcript of that movie, Control-S, the word faggot, you'd get a lot of great
0: stuff. The Isabella Rossellini character and the Wingshauser character his relationship is really funny. And then culminating in the infamous letter that she gives to him.
1: And which his response to is probably the most infamous scene in the movie, in which he simply says, Oh God oh man
0: the acting is bad there but the other thing that's great is that the camera is spinning you got the dramatic music and the zoom ins and all this stuff it's a real work of total cinema and there's an interview with norman mailer on the special feature that someone's uploaded onto youtube
1: (laughs) yeah we got to talk about this movie you made norman mailer
0: And he seems to think he nailed it, which is the funniest part.
1: He did. People still talk about this. People, years after he died, that scene is getting uploaded on YouTube with the title, like, best line ever. And I mean, it's in jest, but people are talking about this, no doubt.
0: It's from, if you've ever seen the show Community, there's the bit where it's like, Leonard, why are you reviewing frozen pizzas? And he just replies, you're talking about it. That's this movie. You're talking about it.
1: Exactly.
0: The thing is, people weren't talking about it. It was a famous box office bomb.
1: Oh, yes, I forgot about another great line in the film, which is, I'm no more of a slut than any faggot. (laughs) The sexual politics of this film. We
0: should also repeat, one of our enemies of the podcast, the Golden Raspberry Awards, gave this worst director.
1: Tied with Elaine May for
0: Ishtar. This is not the worst movie that came out in 1987. Neither is Ishtar, obviously. Ishtar is great. Tough Guys No Dance is competently made, which is the other part that's baffling about this movie. That's
1: what's so fascinating. You have the cinematographer, or one of the cinematographers is John Bailey, whose other credits include Paul Schrader's American Gigolo, Mishima A Life in Four Chapters. These are real movies that people are like, yeah, the cinematography is beautiful when they talk about these movies.
0: He also did The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants in 2005. always weird like cinematographers have the most bizarre careers
1: mia Bauhaus his career is like fassbender scorsese broadcast news what about bob
0: wild wild west
1: what about bob and world on a wire are shot the same motherfucker
0: the reason that i think tough guys don't dance works so well is that it's just actually funny i don't know how much that is intentional and it's not like the other movies where they're, like, trying to be funny and, like, mostly fail at it. This is funny because it's pathetic. The other movies aren't pathetic. This is a guy that sucks. This is a guy who feels out of place in the 80s, basically. This is a guy there's just all these cocaine parties and he's just looking sad like a puppy dog while topless women snort coke in front of him.
1: Yeah, he's just sort of sadly meandering through the world in his empty masculine existence
0: you get a sense that Norman Mailer feels out of place in the 1980s almost. You get a sense that he feels the counterculture that he was once a sort of figure of is now gone.
1: Yeah.
0: It's truly bizarre, but I love it. It's such a strange movie. We should also state uh, one person who, notable thing, is that Roger Ebert gave Tough Guys Don't Dance like a 2.5 out of 4.
1: Jonathan Rosenbaum praised this film. The film had at least two supporters <laughs> at Wikipedia states. Jonathan Rosenbaum and and Vincent Camby to varying degrees of enthusiasm. Vincent Campy described it as not the high point of the Mailer career, but a small entertaining part of it. While Jonathan Rosenbaum said Norman Baylor's best film, which that's not saying much. <laughs> Adapted from his worst novel, shows a surprising amount of cinematic savvy and style. Also, he translates his high rhetoric and macho preoccupations, existential tests of bravado, good orgasms, murderous women, metaphysical cops, into an odd campy raunchy comedy thriller that remains consistently watchable and unpredictable as Goofy in a way is Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, where Ruth Meyer features women with oversized breasts, Mailer features male characters with oversized ego, that really hammers it
0: that really does get at something I like what Roger Ebert said I just looked up his review what is strange is that tough guy's dance leaves me with such a vivid memory of its time and places its feelings and weathers and yet leaves me so completely indifferent to its plot you're wrong there, Roger, I'm sorry. Watching the film, I laughed a great deal. Many of the situations play like comedy. Remembering it, it seems elegiac, but in a way that has nothing to do with the deaths and the plot. That is right. Something else seems to die and be mourned. Something to do with Dougie and the cold flats of sand at Twilight. Man. Sometimes I forget how good of a writer Roger Eber
1: is. It's much more hallucinatory and dreamlike, and, like, scenes will go by with no hint of connection to the last one. Like, how deeply layered is this flashback?
0: Actually, like, Blue Velvet is a comparatively conventional movie.
1: There's some weird stuff happening in Blue Velvet, but it's never... There's always a clear sense of where and when this is happening. While in Tough Guys Don't Dance, there's no sense of that whatsoever.
0: So you hear that, folks? We think Tough Guys Don't Dance is a better movie than Blue Velvet. <laughs> <laughs> the movie works really well. It's really funny. It's energetic. There's no use following the plot at all. If you watch this, just stop giving a shit. <laughs> Don't think about, like, the mystery overarching.
1: Don't think, feel.
0: Yeah, you yeah, just feel the vibes. Let the cocaine-addled paranoia wash over you.
1: As Robert Bresson says, I'd rather have someone feel a movie than understand
0: it. That is the way to experience Tough Guys Don't Dance. Just let the misogyny flow through you. Let the weird homophobia. Let the bizarre, bizarre, bizarre acting choices. It's like a dream. I know it's so cliché, but this is a movie that is actually a dream.
1: You know when you like wake up from a dream and you're kind of trying to figure out exactly what happened? That's basically what it feels like the second the credits start rolling and tough guys don't dance.
0: You're just like, where does this leave us? Why? Why did they bury all the bodies together like that at the end? Why does that cure cancer? Why does, the- <laughs> <laughs> Why
1: does he say it like that? What are these actors doing?
0: It's bizarre. It's not like anything that's ever been made. I think it's a film that deserves a better place in film history, to be honest. It deserves to be remembered as more than just a meme.
1: I'm glad that Vinegar Syndrome put it out, because they have put out real movies that people really talk about, and it's like you always hope that with some major DVD label putting something out, something's getting more exposure.
0: As much as most of Norman Miller, is probably rightfully buried. There's a reason people don't watch Maidstone. It's shocking going on Letterboxd. It only has 2,000 views. This is a movie that feels like it should be.
1: At the very least, a cult classic like The Room...
0: I would much rather watch this again than The root, to be fully honest.
1: It would be fun to go to a screening of it.
0: There's so many fucking screenings of The Room. That's something that actually bothers me a lot. Instead of showing, like, new So Bad It's Good or Camp Classic-type movies, theaters, just always show The Room. And it's like, I've seen The Room. It's fine, but I want different vibes. I want new feelings. I want...
1: The Mayfair, which is a theater in Ottawa, basically does, I believe, at least yearly screenings of The Room. Does anyone
0: need that? I don't want to be like...
1: It's one of the things the theater is associated with.
0: I feel like I was probably just too young to, like, experience The Room when it wasn't, like, a dead joke, you know? Whereas I feel like it's cruel realities of capitalism, obviously, which they can't show all these new movies, not new, but, like, different kind of camp movies because they don't know if people will go see them.
1: I feel like people will go see Tough Guys Don't Dance. I'll go see Tough Guys Don't Dance.
0: If there's anyone who, like, runs a theater out here...
1: Playhouse programmers, I know some of you guys follow me on Twitter. Please do a screening of Tough Guys Don't Dance.
0: I will head down to Hamilton and watch... (laughs) tough guys don't dance because tough guys really they don't dance though they actually say the title of the movie, which is one of the best parts also.
1: And it's such a totally benign and unrelated conversation to the plot. It's just Lawrence Tierney talking about something when the movie is much more about O'Neill. He's saying, these spirits, they told me to dance. I told them, tough guys don't dance.
0: I love all the bits about Helltown in the film.
1: Yeah, there's a very cerebral quality to it.
0: We should probably talk about the seance.
1: Oh, God. that feels so disconnected with and yet
0: it feels connected
1: yeah no the film it feels like everything is on the cusp of making sense but it doesn't
0: it's a failed masterpiece basically that's what i'd say i'm not like big on the so bad it's good thing where it's just like laughing at the movies because that's often boring
1: that's often boring and it's often just plain wrong and it often comes from a place of like people being afraid to genuinely enjoy something or genuinely feel like emotion in response to something the response to valley of the dolls really pisses me off because there is a lot of real tragedy in that film that people just laugh at and it feels really really cruel in a way well it's like tough guys don't dance admittedly there's not a tragedy in tough guys don't dance I mean there is it's much more distant in the fact that it's so nonsensical
0: really, really something that needs to be seen to be believed. It's a movie without really, you could compare it to David Lynch, but like, it's not at all actually like David Lynch, other than just these superficial surface elements. It's its own thing entirely.
1: It's its own thing. Lynch is just a starting point or it's one piece of the picture that is tough guys don't dance.
0: It's beautiful. <laughs> What's actually most shocking is just how good looking the movie is, especially, maybe my standards are really low after spending a week watching Norman Miller movies. Maybe my standards are just horrible now. So I'm like, a movie where the camera is competently moving around is like... It's beautiful. It's like a travel ad. You should visit Province. You can you can visit health.
1: Watch Tough Guys Don't Dance. Come to hell.
0: Do a sound. Have a threesome. Have sex with a guy's wife right in front of him even though he's gay. <laughs>
1: That's a good place to end it. Normally
0: we say some things that are like topical, I guess, more than just the fact that we talked about Norman Miller. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh yeah happy pride month
0: uh, happy pride month again yeah go to norman mailer's grave leave a rainbow leave just a rainbow of flowers at norman mailer's grave but
1: because the worst thing you can do is insinuate he'd be gay
0: yeah he will like kill uh he's screaming
1: do a seance t- for norman mailer we
0: have to like go to new york we you know we gotta go to provincetown rent a cabin to other people do some coke.
1: Yeah, we gotta do the whole tough guys don't dance thing right the day on the mirror.
0: Yeah, then we'll get to talk to Nori Miller. And then we'll scream, seeing our own deaths. It'll be truly fantastic.
1: That's right.
0: And remember, if you're a tough guy, don't dance. <laughs>